thanks, Keith. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Patrick Brady. Um, Dr. Brady is uh, joining us from Cincinnati Children's, a little hospital in the Midwest that you might have heard of. Um, and as you guys know, um, I, I usually tell some embarrassing story about the speaker or, or, or something, but I, I can't tell. I, I have nothing to say about Pat that's not entirely nice. Uh, as I told his wife last night at dinner, um, he may be the most genuinely nice human on the planet. Uh, <laughs> Pat is uh, um, a, a fund, federally funded from, through the HRQ to study um, situational awareness in uh, medically complex children at Cincinnati Children's. And he's also an editor at Hospital Pediatrics and um, an incredibly gifted editor as well as a, an excellent writer. So um, if you guys are aspiring future health services or quality improvement researchers, you should come down and talk to, to Pat afterwards. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Patrick Brady. Great. Uh, thanks, Sean, and, and thanks all for, for being here today. Just, just a matter of, of time before there's an embarrassing story, no doubt. Um, Everyone knows I drive. <laughs> um, so uh, excited to talk uh, this morning about some work we've done with, with evidence adoption, um, like some of my work with safety and situation awareness, um, use QI methods, use theory. Um, but we'll spend some time talking about um, some successes we've had in Cincinnati on um, rapidly adopting evidence to um, particularly target some therapies um, where it, uh, it seems there's some overuse. Uh, no disclosures. So three objectives this morning. Um, we'll talk about a couple of successful evidence adoption uh, projects, both targeting um, overuse, uh, the first having to do with intro, intravenous antibiotics for uncomplicated acute hematogenous osteomyelitis, and the second on continuous pulse oximetry monitors for improving infants hospitalized with, with respiratory illness. Um, we'll talk a little bit about um, some drivers of success and persistent challenges, um, both from a pretty modest literature out there as well as um, some of our experience um, doing this with six or seven projects in Cincinnati. Uh, and talk a little bit about some of the particular perils of evidence adoption and QI and multi-site networks. So as way of, of an outline, we'll do a few slides introducing um, evidence adoption, de-adoption, and I'll spend some time on, on defining those terms as well as, as overuse and some of the um, literature on its definition and magnitude. Um, and then we'll talk about reducing um, the overuse of PICC lines and treatments of uncomplicated acute hematogenous osteo, reducing the overuse of continuous pulse oximetry in hospitalized children with respiratory illness. Um, and, and as noted in the objectives, we'll, we'll close with, a, with um, some discussion on the drivers of success in rapid evidence adoption. So I wanted to start with uh, a kind of a 10,000-foot view in terms of why this might be so problematic. So, the doubling time of medical knowledge um, is about eight years. Um, I won't spend too much on these slides that are um, probably don't project perfectly, but I, I think even from the, the back row, and, and this is um, trials published over the last 100 years, you can see that this is an, an exponential distribution, so things are increasing really quickly. Um, this is an example looking at um, non-trials, including review articles and case reports. Um, in this case, the, the, the y-axis is in the tens of thousands. 
Um, so, so what this means is, is keeping up with the evidence is, is, is more or less impossible. There are a couple of, of quotes that I really like by folks that have captured this struggle. So, so Donald Lindbergh, who's the former director of the National Library of Medicine, made the comments, if I read and memorized two medical journals cover to cover, Every night, by the end of the year, I'd be 400 years behind. So, so we're, we're making knowledge at a pace that is absolutely impossible for a single clinician to keep up with. Um, and then Brent James at Intermountain, whose um, work you guys probably know in quality and safety, um, makes the comment that the, the illiterate today are not those who can't read or write. It's those that can't learn, unlearn, and relearn. Um, you guys have also probably heard the quotes that um, half of what we all learn in medical school is, is wrong. We just don't know what half until we get out there and start practicing and, and learning uh, the new discoveries. So the, the other uh, challenge I, I wanted to bring up that, that also may be familiar to, to folks here is the, the pretty tremendous gap between um, publication of the definitive trial um, and research benefiting patient care. So the, the number here is, is even longer. Um, 17 year estimate by Ballas and Boren. We, we won't spend too much of a, of a couple of examples. The uh, landmark trial on the flu vaccination came out in 1968. When this paper came out, um, when this paper came out in 2000, so the most recent CDC data was 1997, so almost 30 years later, we were at 55% on that. Thrombolytic therapy that showed definitive benefits for groups of patients um, was used in just 20% of patients 18 years later. So all kinds of challenges in, in getting care to people that can benefit from it. Um, and we'll talk uh, a little bit about some strategies we've used to, to negotiate that. And, and as I mentioned before, we'll, we'll be talking um, in particular about um, how we deal with evidence on practices that, that do not work. Um, there have been uh, a number of, of terms coined for this over the last, uh, last few years. Um, De-implementation is probably um, my favorite, exnovation or the, the inverse of innovation um, is one used in the Institute of Healthcare Improvement and, and, and de-adoption is another one. Um, one uh, really nice commentary from uh, TDI faculty Frank Davidoff uh, talks about a, a different term or undiffusion commenting that um, we know a lot from Everett Rogers' work in terms of the diffusion of innovations and what that curve looks like with the S shape. We don't know too much on, on undiffusion um, and, and how it works. So so wanted to talk a, a, a little bit about um, what we do know on undiffusion or de-adoption. And, and, and I, I think the, the big summary is we don't know very much, um, but from what we do know, it looks like it may be an even more complicated problem than adoption of new evidence. So, so this is a paper um, that was published in JAM Internal Medicine last year that looked at um, use of tight glycemic control strategies um, in adult ICU patients at over 100 ICUs using the, the Apache database. Um, and what they did is they put um, the, the use of those in context of, of two trials. Um, the first one that I'll, I'll review briefly since we're, we're pediatricians and probably um, don't think about this, this too much is 
Um, a study came out um, in 2001 called the Leuven One that looked at um, tight um, versus conventional glycemic control in surgical patients um, and showed a significantly reduced mortality. Well done trial, important trial was in the New England Journal, showed a number needed to treat of 29, so a, a reasonable number of um, patients that you could do in a single ICU and see a difference. Then as this idea spread, there was a larger, better, multinational trial that included both medical and surgical patients called the NICE Sugar Trial, published in 2008. This looked at tight versus conventional glycemic control in this whole group of patients. And, and this actually showed when you do tight the, the tight strategy, there's an increased risk of severe hypoglycemia and there's an increased risk of mortality. So, so what did this do to the, to the evidence adoption? So th this is a, a figure from that big Apache database looking at how many, what percent of ICU patients got um, tight glycemic control. You can see before the first study, that number was around 15%. We saw the first um, trial come out and we saw a steady increase over time. Then in 2008, when, when a larger, better trial showed that this was pretty clearly a bad thing, the effect was, uh, pardon me, the effect was it kept going up just a little bit more slowly. So pretty definitive evidence that this was a bad thing, slowed the rate of, uh, of decline. It has not, from what we've seen so far, um, reduced it. So a, a little bit on, on use. Um, this is from a, a JAMA paper that Don Berwick was the, the lead author on. Um, the definition that, um, that they use is the waste that comes from subjecting patients to care that, according to sound science and the patient's own preferences, cannot possibly help them. It's care rooted in outmoded habits, <laughs> supply-driven behavior, and ignoring science. I won't get too into the math or the um, epidemiology in terms of how you calculate overuse, because you can imagine it's really complicated. Um, but there are really thoughtful estimates that show as much as 30% of healthcare um, spending in the United States is, is waste, money spent um, that doesn't benefit uh, patients. So I wanted to um, transition to talking about how we've applied the idea or how we've looked at programmatically at better evidence adoption. This is the REACH program. You can see it stands for Rapid Evidence Adoption for Child Health. <laughs> we, of course, rely on researchers around the country and world to, to do the definitive studies um, to apply it. Um, but this is the model we've used to think about how we can identify gaps in our performance and then improve care. Um, so there's an evidence search process. Um, this brings together clinicians and we have some medical librarians that help with this. Um, I would say from a practical standpoint, the, the real successes we have had is when a clinician is passionate about um, a topic, is passionate about um, the evidence review that drives that topic and, and can move it forward. But we've got some support from a number of folks. Then as you're trying to decide if this is an important topic to, to tackle, um, we've got some processes in place where we look at our baseline data. So, so do we have a gap in the evidence performance or was this just one person's perception after a, a lousy week on service? So, so what's the baseline like? What's the gap like compared to what we're doing and, and how do we start um, thinking about tackling this work? 
So in terms of the implementation, um, the, first, um, the first part of that strategy is to, to adapt the evidence to local context. That, that's a phrase that the, the REACH program leadership use. I, I, I'm not sure if I, if I love the framing of, of adapt evidence, but I, I think that the important idea is um, you need a clear message on what the evidence is and what patients are going to apply this to. You need to think about what the barriers are going to be in terms of why you haven't done this. Um, we don't have a great understanding of what the barriers are, but I think there's a lot of reason to think that when we're reducing overuse, um, these may be more complicated because people, people don't do therapies that they think don't bring value to patients and families. People don't choose to give an antibiotic that they think is, is improper. So, so questioning that can feel um, like a somewhat um, different and, and more um, uh, culturally or personally fraught um, decision, and I think it's important to, to think about that. Um, then you need to think about the improvement efforts you're going to tackle, and I'll, I'll talk through a little bit some of the strategies we, we've used there. Um, and you, of course, need to monitor outcomes. So like with any QI project, you need to think about um, the importance of process, outcome, and balancing measures. For evidence adoption, I think this is, it, this is generally pretty straightforward. So for your process measure, you need to look at something that, that gets at how often are you abiding by the evidence as you define for, for the QI project? Again, you probably want to pick one or two key decisions to, to follow. Um, and in terms of the outcome and balancing measures, I, I think these, these are often really important for, for this work um, for two reasons. One, you, you'd love to see that, that the, the, the change in the care that you provide is improving care. And with the idea of balancing measures, if this is an area where there's some disagreement and there's some controversy, I think it's also really important to, to prove not just from papers published elsewhere, to prove, but to prove at your center that the, the changes you're making are not making things um, worse for patients there. Um, and then once you start doing the quality improvement work, you of course need to think about how you're going to sustain success and how you're going to drive further improvements. Um, of course, with this last arrow popping up here, this is an iterative process, right? It may have been with the first tight glycemic control trial, you put a lot of energy into um, getting these protocols in place, and then the right thing when more definitive evidence comes out is to do a new search and then act on the new evidence. So wanted to, to talk um, for the next little bit about work we've done um, reducing the use of PICC lines in acute hematogenous osteomyelitis. This will be our first project. So our group started with um, using a, a PICO question. Uh, we thought it was important that we, we frame this both for the literature review um, as well as the QI moving forward. Um, you can see the population we were looking at was um, kids uh, between two months and 18 years with routine, with routine osteo. We'll, we'll define that a little bit more in a few slides. The intervention in this case would have been long-term, um, over seven days of IV antibiotics that almost always would, would be through a PICC line for some course versus the comparison of short-term IV antibiotics with early oral transition to complete the course. Um, and the outcomes that, that the studies have looked at for this are, are things like cure rate as well as treatment failure, often meaning readmission to the hospital. So I'll, I'll briefly talk about um, three studies that, that, that looked at this. Um, the first is, is a systematic review that came out, um, I guess, almost 15 years ago from LaSalle and colleagues. Um, they looked at a total of 11 prospective studies 
um, that compared short course IV um, with, oral with early oral transition, um, and they looked at clinical cure rates um, at six months, so the idea being they were cured from their acute osteo or they went on to develop chronic osteo, which to be clear is, is, a, is a miserable complication, something we need to um, take quite seriously. Um, and they found across the board in those studies there was not a difference between short and long-term course IV looking at cure rates. Um, the short course was 95%, the long course was 98%, with considerably overlapping confidence intervals uh, in a total of 230 patients. So um, a modest size group of 230 patients. The, the second study that we found informative with this work um, was one of a, a couple that, that the Finnish group um, led by Poltola had done um, a few years ago. Um, so they did um, a randomized control trial of 130 um, kids with culture-positive osteomyelitis. Interestingly, th this group took for, for granted for the most part that trans early transition from IV to oral made sense. And what they looked at was um, the difference between short-term therapy, so short course IV followed by a total of 20 days oral versus long-term therapy. Um, for, for, for 30 days. Um, again, in, in both groups, the median length of IV therapy was relatively short, four days in this case. Um, and because this was a prospective study, they had really great follow-up on these kids, seeing them at two weeks, at three months, and at 12 months. Um, and they were able to look not just at um, overall outcomes, but at how um, things like inflammatory markers changed over time and saw no difference in any of those findings. Um, all but two patients had full recovery, again, speaking to the fact that um, while undertreated osteo um, can be a really big deal with proper treatment, um, these groups tend to do quite well. There was one, one patient that had a, a small percent deformity in the short-term group um, and one the long group, long-term group that had um, slight pain on exercise. Um, but, but two out of 131 had, had any problems at all. The, the next study I want to talk about a, a little bit was um, a big multi-site cohort study done by Theo Zaoudis and colleagues. Um, I think a, a couple things that are important about this, th this used the Pediatric, Pediatric Health Information System da Database, or, or, or FIS, an administrative database. Um, and the, the really important power of this study is it had a really large group of kids, so, so al almost 2,000 kids included in this, 29 freestanding hospitals um, in a retrospective cohort. Um, th they used some, some pretty sophisticated comparative effectiveness methods, in this case propensity score matching, to get at the idea that kids that got long-course long IV antibiotics may have had factors that worried their doctors more um, uh, what we call uh, confounding by indication, so, but they were able to adjust for that within the variables present in the data set. Um, importantly, this group um, with a, a, a really, um, really big treatment group did not see any, any difference in treatment failure. So it was 5% in the prolonged IV and 4% in the oral therapy group, um, which of course wasn't statistically significant. Um, in this study, again looking at administrative data, um, they saw over 3% of kids in the prolonged IV, um, IV group were readmitted for problems associated with the PICC line. So, so overall, um, it was 8% in, in the prolonged IV 
and 4% of the oral therapy that were readmitted to the hospital. Um, and, and related to this, um, there's some, some single center work also out of, uh, of Philadelphia uh, that Rubner and colleagues did um, where they're able to look at all patients at their center that got over two weeks of IV therapy for, for osteo um, and saw 41% um, had at least one catheter com complication. A lot of these were relatively minor things like needing um, to go to the ER to get it readjusted. Um, but a not small percentage, 11%, were catheter-associated bloodstream infections, um, which of course can, can be serious, even life-threatening. A couple of um, quick comments on, on, on the data in this paper. Um, so I, I mentioned they used some, some sophisticated matching techniques. Um, the, the balance between the two groups was, was pretty, um, pretty amazing. So it, it, was, it was almost half and half got IV versus oral. And when you look at how well they matched for age, 58% of kids in both groups were over five, how well they matched for site of infection, and how well they matched for identified pathogen, not, not great identifying pathogen, pathogen and administrative data, but when it was there, um, the matching was um, quite strong. And then the, the other point um, that I, I think is, is important to make when we're looking at studies uh, like this is that the, the variation across um, children's hospitals was profound. Um, so this um, shows the percent transition to oral therapy by hospital, and you can see the lowest hospital did just 10% of the time, the highest hospital did 95% of the time. Um, when, you, when you do a study using the, the FIS data set, um, you need to sign an agreement saying you won't identify which hospital is which. I wasn't part of this study, so I can tell you Cincinnati Children's was that one right there um, that had um, a quite highly reliable system um, at sending kids home on longer course IV antibiotics, um, which again, I, I would argue is not something supported by the, by the weight of the evidence. So a, a team um, that I was part of and was led by um, Patrick Conway when he was in Cincinnati um, came together to, to look at the evidence. Um, and one of the things that the team did is they started by putting an evidence statement together. This um, is not this, as detailed and rigorous a process as, as making an evidence-based guideline, um, but there is a process to that. And, and I, I think it was really important that the group made an evidence statement invited all to participate, and then showed this publicly so that people, everyone could see the rationale going into this. And you can see that there are, are two recommendations called out there, um, recommending oral, uh, early transition to oral therapy and recommending that um, that discussion be, be made um, with families. I'll talk a little bit about how we did both those things. So um, like any good quality improvement uh, project, we had a specific aim. Uh, in this case, we wanted to increase more than tenfold. Um, from 7% to start uh, to over 70% within 120 days. And again, our focus is on the percentage of kids with routine osteomyelitis discharged from the hospital medicine service on, on oral therapy. Again, we want to start with routine. We wanted to start with patients on our service with the idea being um, we wanted to get this right for as straightforward and, and, and uncontroversial a cohort as we could. We use the model for improvement in PDSA cycles to do this. So the, the main study uh, used quality improvement methods. Um, I'll, I'll share with you some annotated statistical process control charts to show our changes over time. 
Um, the main outcome we looked at was the route of antibiotic therapy at discharge. So did kids go home on orals or did they go home with a PICC line in place? Um, we also collected some data that I'll share here in terms of pre-post surveys before we did some education assessments. Um, and then, as mentioned earlier, we thought it was really important to, to do a, a thorough chart review to see if we were seeing any changes in length of stay, charges, or complications um, between our pre- and post-intervention groups. Um, so as, as mentioned, our population was all patients with acute hematogenous osteo admitted to the hospital medicine service. For exclusion criteria, uh, we thought it was important to, to, um, to, to go based on the evidence there. Clearly, post-operative osteo is a different animal. Um, we didn't want to think of, of that the, the same way. We didn't want to include kids with major comorbidities who had been excluded from the um, studies that we were using, and we didn't want kids with over seven days in the hospital thinking that these kids were, were likely systematically different from kids that had um, relatively short stays. So this is our, our key driver diagram um, that shows our smart aim on the left. Um, you can see in the, the bottom left corner the, the, the global aim in terms of what we hope to <coughs> rapid evidence adoption. And I'll, I'll briefly talk you through the key drivers or the things that we thought we had to get right um, to, to see a large change in our system. Um, so the first one um, is, is probably the, 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 the most obvious, but we, we, we had to get the evidence disseminated. We had to get the people involved in the treatment decisions um, aware of what was out there. And we thought both, both understanding some of the studies as well as putting the, um, the evidence statement together was important. Um, we thought it was important that we bring the experts together um, to come up with treatment decisions. Um, and then we also did some work, and I'll, I'll, talk, um, I'll talk a little bit about this and then may, may invite some questions afterwards um, in terms of figuring out um, who were the folks we needed to consult on osteo. Um, it may not make a lot of sense one could posit um, to consult a physician that you're pretty sure wasn't going to agree with you on what the evidence said. <laughs> um, we uh, worked on a physician ordering system and decision support for evidence-based care. I'll show some examples of um, how we use uh, order sets. Um, as we talked about, we thought it was really important to engage families in shared decision-making on this, and I'll show you an example of our, our, our shared decision-making tool. Um, we did a lot of work on, on getting rapid feedback to physicians um, on what the evidence said when they had a patient um, uh, hospitalized with acute hematogenous osteo. Um, and of course, it was really important that we engage our community physicians who are going to be the people taking over um, the care of these kids after they left the hospital. So briefly wanted to share the, the survey we did on this work. So we anchored in a scenario of a seven-year-old boy who presented with tibial, tibial osteo, didn't have a septic joint, had a negative blood culture, and is already improving a couple days after um, hospitalization. I'll talk about a couple questions um, on the next slide. We asked folks if they typically treat with long-term IV therapy, and you can see the response options there, and then we asked if they typically involve the family and explicitly asked their preferences in this decision. So here's our, our results of the, the pre-post discussion with both our faculty and resident student group. So for our hospital medicine faculty, um, you can see 41% um, answered that we usually treated with um, long-term IV before the evidence discussion, um, went to 0% after. Um, that was statistically significant. Um, 
With the residents and students, um, they were a little bit higher both um, pre and post, um, but also saw a, a pretty profound reduction. Um, and then relatedly, when it came to engaging the family in the decision, um, both groups said they did it about half the time before um, and that they would do it um, quite often afterwards. Um, also significant results for both of these things. So here's the, here's the run chart. Um, it's it's pretty, pretty dramatic. Um, the x-axis is um, month uh, and year. This goes from 2009 to 2012. Um, the y-axis the y is the average number of patients that month with osteomyelitis that went home on oral antibiotics. I'll show you another, um, another uh, control chart next, because I, I want to point out that a lot of these ends, um, which are in the parentheticals on the x-axis, are, are really small, right? Osteo is not super common, even in a big children's hospital. So we had lots of ones and twos. Um, but you can see our, our median performance went from zero to 100%, and it did so pretty quickly. So the, the next slide that I want to spend a, a bit more time on is a cases between chart. So, so this is a better um, type of SPC chart to use when events are uncommon. So what the x-axis has in this, uh, in this time is the date an osteo patient was discharged on IV antibiotics. So we thought of, we thought of um, kids going home on IV as the failure in this scenario, and we wanted to see the cases between those events um, go up. You can see before we started this work, the cases between was most commonly zero, right? We, we were pretty darn reliable um, at getting kids home on, on IV antibiotics. And then as we did some work, so the, the first box there is um, educating our faculty, which we, we didn't see um, improvement based on education alone, probably not a surprise. We, we spread that to education. Um, we next started working on a real-time identify and mitigate strategy, so, so getting the doctors information that, that, that if they had a patient on osteo, this is the evidence statement, this is where it is. Your decision to make, but, 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 but this is what the, the, the evidence says. Um, we, we put together a shared decision-making guide that I'll, I'll show you in a, mo a moment, um, and then we had an order set go live. What you can see is this um, control limit um, uh, is three standard deviations roughly above the, the median here. Um, and when you're above this, this shows you have special cause variation or variation unlikely due to chance. You can see we had one point here and then another point here that were clearly um, showing we had a, a different system. So I wanted to spend a little bit, a little bit of time about what the shared decision aid looks like. I, I hope that projects um, pretty well in back. So the, the first part here, we reviewed with families the options um, that we talked through in terms of early transition oral antibiotics or, or a PICC line. Next, um, we showed the um, relative efficacy of the two treatments. So you can see both say less than a 5% risk of the bone infection failing to get better. Um, and then we showed the potential risk of the complications. So you can see the medications by mouth is a relatively modest set of risk and a longer set of risk for the PICC line. And then the rightmost column made sure families understood the decision um, and asked them what they'd like to do next. Um, Bill, Bill Brinkman in Cincinnati, who's an expert in decision aids, 
um, was super helpful with this, but, but made the comment that it, it frankly is a relatively odd decision aid because there's almost only one rational decision to make from it, <laughs> which is to do the thing that works just as well and has less complications. Um, interestingly, we did have um, one family choose IV because they were convinced they couldn't get their young toddler to take oral medication. Um, I wasn't the doctor for this kid. That doesn't feel like 100% the right decision versus working with child life and all to, to get the kid taken, uh, taken the darn Clinda, but uh, not how it went. Um, so so this, um, this is the, the, the last data slide on this, but this just looks at our outcomes um, in the pre and the post period. So um, in the pre, we had no kids go home on oral antibiotics, so there were no complications. Uh, we had nine kids go home on PICC lines, one of which um, came back to the ER with some local irrit irritation that didn't, didn't end up being a serious complication or requiring admission. Post-intervention, we had 15 kids um, go home on oral antibiotics. We looked at, at, at all cause here. So we had one kid come back to the ER with fever and vomiting, not believe related to the osteo. We had one patient come back and get incision and drainage of, a, uh, of the finger and a nail bed removal. Some possibility this could be related to the osteo, but that was not clear. Um, then with the pick line, we had just two kids, um, and unfortunately in the post period, but both of these kids ended up coming back to the hospital. One came back to the ER with a pick line not functioning. The other one came back um, with lymphadenitis in the neck and pain with the pick flush. This didn't end up growing an organism, but also plausibly is a complication related to the, um, the central line. So conclusions from this work, um, we were able to to rapidly adopt the, the evidence with a multifactorial intervention. Um, we saw education change significantly pre-post. Um, we also saw differences in terms of what treatment we used and what consults we placed. Treatment failure was rare um, and similar in both groups. So I wanted to, to do a couple of epilogue slides because I, I, I think the, the, the fact that we were less good partners with the infectious disease doctors in this stage was, was not a great part of the story. Over the last three years, um, we've had a better partnership with ID here. We've consulted them more um, for every osteo patient, and we have seen some loss in, in the gains we made with evidence-based therapy with less kids going home on oral therapy. Um, just a couple of months ago, though, um, it's exciting that we released a CARE algorithm. So, so this is our, our newest version of the <laughs> evidence statements um, where hospital medicine, ID, and ortho were all together at the table. Um, there are a bunch of key decision points, but I'll just highlight the top one there to avoid putting in a pick before all have been involved in the discussion, and then the, the, the bottom um, point there. Unless there's a contraindication, kids should go home on oral therapy. Um, so wanted to spend uh, a few minutes talking about another project we did reducing pulse oximetry overuse in improving kids hospitalized with wheezing. Um, so this came out of a recommendation from the, the Choosing Wisely Foundation um, that has done some, some great work um, in saying, what are some things that doctors should talk with patients and families about um, because we're not sure the evidence supports doing these things. And the, the fifth one um, tabbed by the Pediatric Committee of the Society of Hospital Medicine was don't use continuous pulse ox in kids with acute respiratory illness unless they're on supplemental oxygen. 
there, there, there's some literature to support that um, that we can talk about if there's questions. So this is, um, this is some great work that, that Amanda Schondelmeyer, um, since they led during her hospital medicine and QI fellowship. You can see on, on the y-axis here, this is the median time hospitalized kids with bronchiolitis or asthma um, were on pulse oximetry after everyone agreed they shouldn't be. So did some work and said, how long do we think is right to have a kid on pulse ox? And they said, two hours after you get off supplemental oxygen or once you get to every two hour NEBS. Um, and to, to, to be clear, um, we use the tight limit strategy that's very different than how you use monitors here where these kids were um, generally had their lower limits at 90% and were alarming all the time um, in ways that probably didn't help us too much with care. So did some education, uh, which is always a great start, and, and, and saw, coincident to that, a, a pretty impressive improvement. Um, then did some work with order set defaults. I think these are, these are really powerful tools in, in the health record, um, making what you want people to do, what you think people should do, the easiest thing for people to do. Um, and I'll talk, um, I'll talk pretty briefly about um, one set of, of PDSAs, but I, I think she did some really cool work in how to actually do QI with EPIC, which is um, something that um, I think we've had a lot more failures than successes. Um, so you can see in, in, her, in her first test, she talked with the senior residents and she said, when you're putting your orders in, remember to change the orders for pulse ox, and they forgot to do that. <laughs> so the, the, the next test, which is where I, I think this is, this is particularly clever, is, is she worked with um, one or two of the um, early adopter senior residents. She said, can we go into your order set, make a change in your order set, and then save it so that we, we make it easy for you to have the, the discontinue pulse ox order in. And then she did that with a couple of folks, make sure they could use it, make sure it made sense to the nurses. And then once that work was able to ramp it up through an order set change that did take a little bit of time. This, this quickly is an example of, of, of what um, this looked like. So the default option was uh, spot, spot check pulse ox. Um, but whether or not you chose um, continuous or spot check, um, it was put in there clearly that the guidelines recommend going to spot check when these kids are off oxygen and that nurses um, would be able to contact the physicians to get an order in to do so. Um, also did some work with, with nurse handoff um, that I'll, I'll show you quickly here. I, I won't get um, too into what this said, but, but one of the challenges um, that, that I think we, we, we joke about it at, at hospitalist is, is, is overnight the, the, the oxygen ferry comes by and puts everyone on supplemental O2. And, and I, I think what, what she saw is um, th there wasn't a great story in terms of why these kids needed oxygen. So if you didn't have a great story, people tended to be like, well, it was probably the right thing. I'm hesitant to wean. So she made a tool that made it made the story clear, and then if people deviated from what we thought was the best practice, we said, tell us, tell us why. Um, was it a parent worry? Was it your worry? Um, and with that work, um, she, she saw continued reductions. This, um, I'll probably go through quickly because of, of time, but 
Um, the blue dots are what you saw earlier. This was the intervention unit. The green dots are the con a control unit, another hospital medicine unit, where she was doing some but not all the interventions. So you can imagine when you do education, that, that affects all the doctors that work on both units. So there was some spread of that. When you do order sets, that involves all the order sets um, in Epic, so there's some contamination there. Oops. Um, but then when she did the stuff that relied on, on the, the nurse handoff, you saw that the, the ones on the intervention unit got down to this um, three hours and 15 minutes, you know, uh, an almost 70% reduction, and you didn't get down as low on the control unit. So um, as, as mentioned, it's important to look at other variables. Um, somewhat disappointingly, we didn't see a benefit in length of stay that we thought we might see. Um, the intervention unit and the control unit had similar lengths of stay. Um, and in terms of balancing majors, we didn't think we were going to make things worse by not monitoring kids that we didn't think would benefit from monitors. But we looked at our equivalent of hurt calls. We looked at, at ICU transfers, and we saw no change in, in those groups either. So couldn't help but um, include a, a couple um, other favorite um, uh, things in terms of, of new evidence and pulse oximetry. So, so this is a, a really neat study out of Toronto where they took 118 healthy kids, previously healthy kids with bronchiolitis. You can see the age range there. And the ones that they decided were well enough to go home from the ER were put on a pulse oximeter with the display and the alarms turned off for the family. So, so the, the family needed to keep the thing on, but that's all they knew. And they kept a journal of how often the probe was on, when the baby was sleeping, when the baby was eating. Um, and they saw some, some pretty amazing results. So, so first of all, there was no difference in the kids that desaturated and the kids that didn't desaturate at all in terms of who came back to the hospital. So you can see 24% um, of the kids with desaturations and 26% with no desaturations came back for an unscheduled visit. So, so almost exactly the same. But when you look at the magnitude of these desaturations, they're pretty profound. So 64% of the babies had a desaturation of any type. Um, of these, almost 80% were 80% or less for a minute. Of those, almost 40%, um, oops, I, I have a typo here. Almost 40% had a desat to 70% or less for one minute. So they were in the 60s. Um, likely looked somewhat grossly cyanotic. Um, and these mostly happened during sleeping or feeding. So I, I think this is um, one of the more compelling examples I've seen of, of overdiagnosis in pediatrics and that idea that if we had monitors on these kids, we would have almost certainly done something, right? If, if you got called at, at, at your primary care office and you heard a kid sighted in the 60s, You'd say get the kid checked out, get the kid on oxygen, but there was no difference in how these babies did. Um, so monitoring kids that are improving can be a bad thing. So what else is coming? Um, well, interestingly, there's a, a, a lot of uh, direct-to-consumer products um, designed to monitor healthy babies. Um, this is one company called the Owlet that has a sock that your baby wears with a continuous pulse ox in it that talks to your iPhone. Um, so maybe this is a good idea. Um, maybe this is um, going to introduce some, some challenges. <laughs> <laughs> so um, 
wanted to spend a, a couple minutes on some other projects we've done in Cincinnati on evidence adoption. Um, I'll just go through some run charts quickly here. Um, so this, this is some work Karen Girardi did on, on reducing um, VCUG tests after the first UTI um, in kids. You can see that, that her team did some work and we went from over 90% to 0% shortly after the new AAP guideline came out three years ago. Um, this is um, another evidence adoption product, project that worked on improving use of narrow-spectrum antibiotics, so in this case, ampicillin or amoxicillin for community-acquired pneumonia. We used to mainly use ceftriaxone and use 33% or so amino penicillins. Um, and with some QI, including education, order set changes and reminders, um, we've been at 100% uh, median performance. Um, this is some work Christy Schuler, Craig Gosson, and colleagues have done on, in terms of reducing over-treatments, in this case, reducing overly long treatments um, for kids with uncomplicated skin and soft tissue infections. So if, if seven days of Clinda is miserable to give a toddler and makes them puke and fight, 14 days that doesn't help is worse, that they uh, significantly improve the kids that got short courses. Um, and this is work Michelle Parker did on increasing the use of probiotics. We, we do increase the use of things sometimes, which a systematic review has shown can reduce diarrhea in kids with acute gastroenteritis. Um, and in this case, we went from 0%, you know, they're, they're, they're not on formulary, they're kind of tricky for us to prescribe, to having a system where 100% of kids um, got these when their families wanted it. So wanted to wanted to close with um, a, a little bit of discussion, um, and then would, would love to hear some comments from, from the audience in terms of um, what are some of the drivers of success in evidence adoption, um, based on our experience and, and, a, and a little bit of literature out there. Um, so I, I participated in a systematic review um, during fellowship a, a few years ago, um, where we looked at articles in healthcare and the business business literature. Um, in terms of what are the contextual factors that make some QI teams um, really do fantastic and make other QI teams with the exact same aims um, struggle. Um, this review was, a, was of all projects, so there were some things related to safety in here, but many of these things are about evidence adoptions. They were about getting MI patients on beta blockers. They were about um, using the best treatment for infections. Um, the, the things that we saw um, consistently help are, are, are probably a, 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 pretty, um, a pretty intuitive list um, to folks that do QI. Um, culture's super important. Having top leadership engaged, aware, and supportive um, is important. Um, and having the data infrastructure information system. So, you know, you saw a lot of stuff of work we'd done with the electronic health record. You also need to be able to query that and get data together. Um, and, and not surprisingly, experience matters. You know, my first, my first QI project of, of getting daily weights on kids with gastro was a disaster, um, but you learn what doesn't work, you learn how to motivate folks, and experience helps with this. Um, things that might help um, would be better involving physicians on the team. Um, I think with evidence adoption, that's probably essential. Um, having a microsystem or a unit that's really excited about the change, so do people have the capability, do they get the vision? Um, having resources for QI helps, um, as does the, the leadership um, of the quality improvement team. So I wanted to also um, 
recognize uh, some work that, that Dr. Ralston did um, with the Valiant Pediatrics Collaborative, where she and colleagues here, uh, most of them uh, here at Dartmouth, uh, did some mixed methods works with 21 hospitals that were all dedicated to improving the or reducing the overuse of non value therapies for bronchiolitis. Um, and some of those hospitals did a great job, and some of them um, didn't change much. They looked at a purposive sample of kids based on quartiles of how they did um, and saw that the, the most important driver of success um, from interviews um, was the idea of team engagement. And, and I think team engagement is probably a underappreciated and powerful thing when we do QI in a multi-site way and how we, how we get the vision, how we keep um, engagement going. Um, research for QI at, at again, a, a broad group of hospitals um, was a challenge. So um, higher level reliability interventions, I think, are, are really important here. I, I won't make this a big talk of reliability science, much of which came from folks um, here in, at, at TDI. Um, but education alone probably isn't going to work. You can see a list of things that are easier to do at scale, easier th things are, 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 are to do reliably. So mention the idea of um, making the desired action the default. Um, electronic order sets are a big friend here. Um, so this is one for asthma. Do, do, does, the, does the new intern remember that a, the, the play dog shouldn't visit the kid with asthma? Probably not, I, I sure wouldn't have. Put, put that in the, the, the order set um, and it can happen um, with quite high reliability. This um, is an example of the real-time identification of failures. This has been a big driver in several of our projects. So particularly when these aren't super common conditions, um, if you can have a pre-populated email, so th this is an email I, I got years ago saying you have a kid with gastroenteritis, there's reason to think that probiotics may offer some symptom relief for this kid. If you have questions, call this doctor, this research assistant. If you want to see the resources, there's the link for them um, and, and, and make the best decision. So um, this is my, my final slide, I think, but uh, uh, some summary thoughts on how we can stop doing things that don't work. Um, I think engaged and committed teams are, are tremendously important and we have to work to foster those. Um, mentioned before that leadership's important, culture's important, and having the right data infrastructure and experience matter. Um, education matters. Um, I think it's necessary. I think it's pretty clear that it's not sufficient. Um, and the, the, the really important strategy they talked a little bit about is making the best choice, the default choice, or the easiest choice really does help. So in examples we talked about, an order set that defaults to narrow spectrum antibiotics, an order set that, that defaults to, to pulse oximetry. Um, we were just chatting yesterday. I, I think to the extent we can frame decisions as doing something else versus doing less, I think that's an easier pitch um, for clinicians that, that always want to do something um, to help kids improve. Um, and importantly, um, patients and families need to be invited into the decision, particularly when there's controversy or, or disagreement. Th thanks all for attending. Thanks, uh, Sean, for hosting, and be happy to, to hear any questions. Thank you for that uh, wonderful presentation. Uh, I come at this from the point of view of the picture. 
Yeah. And I can give you examples of treatments that have no evidence for them, or they're currently being studied, and IRBs have developed their second point, so that it's not a position, yeah. or things that have been disproven as helpful. But this element of desperation comes in. Do you have any uh, experience with that in that setting where they say, oh, yeah, I know it doesn't work, but my patient's going to die, so I'm going to try it anyway? Yeah. Um, I. I, 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 I don't have a terribly analogous experience. I mean, I, I, think, I, I think that there are a lot of challenges in the PICU. Um, you know, in, I hope it's intimidated by digression, but I, I think that there's, there's a lot of things that have shown tremendous pro promise for, for sepsis and septic shock that then d d don't hold out in, in, the, in the trial. Um, and that, that, that may be because the treatment doesn't work, or it may be because we're not great identifying the subtypes of kids that benefit. So I, I think that's an important story there. Um, in terms of the, the desperation thing, um, I, I, I think we always want to do best. I, I think there's probably folks in um, palliative care and such that could um, answer that question better than I, but uh, I, I, I do wonder if um, doing our best to have frank conversations with the family in terms of what we what we know works and what probably isn't going to work and may have some complications may help drive some some of the the least bad decisions in a tremendously difficult scenario. I, I I know with with some of our our bronchiolitis work and and and, and some of the the work Dr. Alston's done. You know, we don't we don't pick our battles on racemic epinephrine in the kid that's about to have a hurt cold and may need some positive pressure in the ICU. We say, if you want to try it, then um, that that's a not unreasonable thing to do. We we just don't want it set up where that leads to every kid in the hospital getting scheduled dabs and staying longer and not getting benefit. Dr. Kittredge. It seems to me that in some ways there's an economy of scale when you have a very large organization you may be able to change the culture for QI, but it seems to me that when you're talking about changing attitudes for physicians, the smaller the number of doctors you have to change, the more nimble the organization is. Do you have any, is there any data yet on, um, if all else is equal, the small hospitals like Chad make changes faster uh, than a large institution like Cincinnati, it strikes me you have so many more ID people to change yeah. than we have, and so many more hospitals to change than we have. Yeah, um, that's, that's a great question. I, I, I can't think of any data that speaks specifically to that. I, I think the, the, the big confounder, um, and, and, and Chad may be a bit of an exception in that it's a relatively small hospital that does a lot of great QI. I, I think often the confounder is the, the smaller hospitals have done less QI and have less resources to do the QI well. So that, 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 that may make it trickier to, to, to interpret that. Um, I, I, would, I would agree that, that I would bet smaller groups are easier to build consensus in and everything else being equal, that that, that would matter. 
I have a question about um, sort of thinking about the end um, that you presented and thinking about the things that matter and the things that are yeah. helpful um, and how to apply them to a system that is changing itself, particularly in personnel. Um, and so when you sort of have turnover of nursing staff, so I, I do primary care, yeah. so nursing staff, flow staff, when the different people are coming through, that can certainly be beneficial, yeah. seen beneficial, just tell the new person the right thing to yep. do. Um, less relearning, but it can also be difficult for having sort of consistency of practice. Yeah, I, I think that's a really uh, it's a really important thing. I, I I think in general turnover is probably more of a driver of success than it is a, a barrier. Um, Bridget and I were talking yesterday about the uh, the the wonderful fact that that Pete's residencies are are three years. So if you're um, Residents uh, grumble about a change to, to start, and you know, to be clear, we, we almost all are wired to grumble at, at changes when we first hear about them. Um, you got to wait three years, and, and and then that senior resident that was grumbling is, is going to be the one saying, "No, that's how we do things at Chad. This is why." We may have ourselves in the situation competing. QI, we institutionally have chosen to monitor all children with pulse oximetry to prevent uh, <laughs> adverse events. And yet I see mothers riding the monitor all the time and insisting on interventions as soon as the saturation drops below 90%. And, you know, and, and, and you know, your work would say that for, for this population of babies, we not, need not to do that. So it's, it's, it's competing priorities in, in QI. How do, you, how do you deal with that within your institutions? I'm sure you have the same kind of thing. Yeah, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I'd love, um, I, I'd love to, to, to hear more about um, your guys' approach. I mean, I, I, think, I think you guys are definitely onto something with the, the lower threshold for the pulse ox alarms. I, 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 think, I think that matters. Um, where, where I would be inclined to disagree with your approach, not not being privy to, to, to all the, the thinking and, and rationale would be, um, there's probably a good number of hospitalized kids where, where monitors make sense and a lower threshold that monitor makes more sense because you're reducing inactionable alarms and still getting the, the critical ones. Um, I think though that there's a pretty tremendous number of, of patients that um, contribute almost entirely noise um, and, and the right move for that group is to is to get them off monitors, um, both to um, reduce false alarms that um, likely matter to the response the nurse is going to make for, to the next alarm, and also that that idea of um, we're adding potential stress and anxiety to a family um, of a kid that they can look at and see improving with, with uh, the monitor that may not consistently do that. Very thought-provoking, and I'll come down and talk to Dr. Brady in person. Thank you very much.